Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Amos chapter 9, and uh, this is the last vision that Amos has here in the chapter, and or in the book, I should say. And, uh, you know, he the last uh, chapter 8 was the vision of the, the basket with the summer fruit, and uh, there's been other uh, pictures and symbols that, that Amos has received in vision, and it's been interpreted to him. With this last vision, there's no pictures, there's no, there's no this is a symbol of that. It's basically, this is what's happening. And so he's getting a, a, a glimpse from the spiritual realm of how God is going to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, there's inter- it's interesting, as I've been studying through this last chapter, there, I, I kind of came through basically six things that we can learn about God's character in this last chapter. And so we're going to be taking a look at that this morning. Six things that we can learn about God's character. And the very first thing we can learn about God's character is found in the very first verse. And it is that God alone is to be worshipped. The Bible says God is a jealous God. What does that mean, a jealous God? It means he's jealous for your heart. He, he doesn't want to share you with anybody else. He loves you that much. And he alone is to be worthy of our worship. And so in verse 9, it says, uh, Amos is, is, is revealing his, or writing down his vision. He says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. Now, right away, we've got to stop right there because that is significant. Um, most of the visions of the Lord in the Bible, he is seated seated on the throne in heaven. Micah's vision in Second Chronicles 18.18 18, it says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing. He's seated, he's seated and everybody else is standing around him on his right hand and on his left hand. And the picture you have is God reigning in heaven. He's reigning and he's ruling. He's sitting on the throne. You know, when you and I go through a difficult time in our lives, it's so important to recognize and remember God's on the throne. He, he's reigning and he's ruling in heaven. Isaiah had a similar vision in Isaiah 6.1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uzziah was a very popular king. Uh, everybody, you know, just a great guy. And when he died, it's like Isaiah, maybe, maybe for a moment there, Isaiah's maybe his, you know, his attention was focused on this earthly king. And it's easy to do, to put people on a pedestal. You look up to them and stuff, and then something happens. Maybe they, especially like, you know, I've heard of people, and I've seen it, where people, you know, that somebody's led them to the Lord. And, and then this person's become a Christian, and they're growing in their faith. And then that person that led them to the Lord, Something happens and they stumble and they fall, they backslide or something. And sometimes it can really devastate people because their focus is on that person. And I don't know if that is Isaiah's case, but in any, any event, it's like it's just a reminder hey, God's the one that deserves our worship, you know, not, not any man. So in the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne. So. This vision here, God is not sitting, he's standing by the altar. That Hebrew word standing, it's a verb meaning to station, to appoint, to erect, or to take a stand. And the Hebrew word um, al, which is where we get, you know, he's standing by the altar. Now the King James Version says he's standing upon the altar. Um, The Hebrew word al is a preposition meaning up, upon, which is probably where the King James Version got that, over, against, by, to, or for. And uh, 
how it's used, because it's a very common preposition that's used throughout the Old Testament. How it's used depends on the context of the words around it. Now, the King James Version, which is what I'm reading from this morning, uh, I think, uh, you know, it says that he is standing by the altar. I don't know that that's necessarily, in my opinion, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so take it for what it's worth. I don't know that that's necessarily the best translation. Because almost it gives you the sense like, you know, God is just kind of standing next to the altar. And, and I don't think that's what, what is being conveyed here. Uh, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, what altar are we talking about? Is he talking about the temple, the altar in the temple in Jerusalem? Well, since this is the northern kingdom, and in context of what the Lord's going to say next, which we'll just read here in a few moments, I don't think it's the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. I think it's the altar in Bethel, the one that Joab, uh, Jeroboam excuse me, had set up in opposition to or in place of the worship of the Lord God. Um, you know, he wanted people not to go down to Jerusalem, so he set up these altars to these calves. So it was like in place of a substitute for going down to Jerusalem. You, could, you don't have to go down there. You can stay here and worship your God here. And, of course, it was the calf. It was an idol. In Exodus 20, verse 3, God told the children of Israel, He said, You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. That is two Hebrew words. Again, it's that same preposition al that we saw in this verse, first verse uh, in chapter 9. Its meaning is upon, over, against, by, to, or for. So it depends on the context again. And then the second word here in Hebrews, ex, uh, in, excuse me, in Exodus 23 is the word pene. And it's a, a, a noun meaning a face. So in the context... God is basically telling the children of Israel in Exodus 20 there, he says, you shall have no other God against my face. I don't know if that's making sense, but it's, it's exactly what Jeroboam had done. He had set up this, this idol, this, this altar to this false god, kind of in the face of God. It's like it's, like it's in opposition to, it's in the place of God. And uh, it's almost like you know just doing something right out in front of his face to offend him. And that, I think that's the context that's being spoken of here, what Jeroboam had done. So Amos sees the Lord standing against, I don't think he's beside, against or in the face of this altar to this false god. And the fact that the Lord is not sitting on the throne in this vision is significant. He's gotten up. He's standing against or in the face of this false god. He's about to take action. I think it's a pretty serious thing when God stands and here he's about to take action against Israel. And this is what he says, continuing here in verse 1. He says, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Strike the doorposts, the King James, or New King James says. Well, the King James says, strike the lintel. And in the context of this verse, again, it's referring to this ornamental bulb on the top part of a column. This is what it's talking about, this threshold or this lintel. And the Lord's command is to strike the very symbol, this, this symbolic like thing. When you go into the temple, that's what you see. This, you walk it in the door, there's this, this, this fancy ornamental thing on the top there. It's a symbol of the very of the temple itself. Now, in Zephaniah chapter two, verse thirteen, Zephaniah sees this vision 
uh, or has this prophecy regarding the destruction of Assyria and Nineveh. And this prophecy in verse 30 says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. The herbs, uh, herbs, the herds <laughs> shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. Their voices shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This prophecy about Assyria and Nineveh says that these, these birds, these, these birds are going to be sitting right there at the lintel, right at the top there, the top of these columns of this, of this city, and it, basically it's representing desolation. You know, sometimes you've seen those old westerns where, the, you know, there's like a vulture sitting on this on the little church steeple or, you know, or next to this building. It's like there's death, there's, there's desolation. And that's what this is speaking about. To the very day, to today, you know, the city of Nineveh or the, the ancient site of Nineveh, it's basically ruins there in, in uh, Iraq. So the, boor, the birds lodging on the top of these capital of the pillars, it's a symbol of the desolation would occur, that would occur. Now, likewise, God's command to strike the very symbol of this idolatrous altar, this temple here uh, in Bethel, was meant to send a message of judgment. You know, one of the things that uh, the United States is trying to do, the Department of Homeland Security, you know, especially in the wake of what just happened this week, they are trying to protect all our national, you know, monuments and stuff. Why, why would they care about monuments? Well, the reason why is because that's what the terrorists want to strike. They'd love to strike the Statue of Liberty. They already did strike the World Trade Towers. You know, they would love to nail, uh, to, to, you know, they try to fly the, those planes into the Pentagon. I mean, all these symbols of America, um, the par- terrorists want to strike those. Why? Because it sends a message to the people. Destroy their symbolic, whatever their symbol, symbol of freedom or symbol of this strength. You destroy that, boy, that sends a, that sends a strong message to the people. That's why terrorists want to do that. It's probably... I'm guessing why the U.S. tried to kill, or they succeeded apparently, in killing that one terrorist they called Jihadi John, you know, the guy that was beheading all these people. It wasn't just, well, because he was a very bad person, but also it was sending a message to ISIS, hey, you know, we're going to find you and we're going to track you down and we're going to hold you accountable for what you did. Um, And so the U.S. is sending, trying to send strong messages to ISIS. Well, likewise, God is sending us very strong message to the people of the northern kingdom, a message of judgment by striking the symbol of this temple that they were worshiping in place of him. And God says he's going to strike, or he's going to slay the idolaters of the people, and no one is going to escape his judgment. And here's the second thing we can learn about God's character. God is all-knowing. The Bible calls, or we call it as a term, it's omniscient. He he knows everything. Look at verse 2 of chapter 9. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. 
Well, that ought to send shivers down your spine when you're reading that. God is, he says, I'm, gonna, I'm setting my heart for harm to these people. That's God's way of basically telling them, you can run, but you can't hide. It's like God saying, I know where you live. You know, that's basically, you, you can't get away from him. Now, listen to this Psalm of David that David penned, and it was about God's omniscience, but it was in the sense of bringing comfort to David. Listen, listen to this, Psalm 139, verse 1. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. And behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. David wrote this saying, no matter what happens to me, no matter where I go, God, you're there. What a comfort that is for you and I. Whatever you and I go through, to know that God is there, it's such a comfort. God knows God knows what you're going through. God sees, and God is there with you. You've you got to wonder how many saints down through the millennia have clung to that verse, that clung to that passage, and, and just to, to gain their own comfort. And maybe they're in, you know, in a dungeon somewhere. Or there's something terrible going on in their life. What a comfort to know that God's there. He sees you, and He knows where you're at, and He's there with you. You know, for you and I as a Christian, that's the good news for you and I as children of God. God's there. He sees. He knows. But it can also be bad news. <laughs> Why? How can it be bad news? It can be bad news if you're walking in disobedience and sin. Again, He sees you. He knows where you're at. You can't hide. So, you know, you can, you can run, but you can't hide. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows what we're doing. He knows, he sees us wherever we're at. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will, <clears throat> excuse me, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God will provide a way of escape through, a temp- through temptation. You know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I always wonder, what, what are those ways? Well, I think one of the ways, I'm sure there's more than one, but one of the ways is a reminder that he's watching us and he sees us. And I think he, he communicates to that, to us, to that during those times. You know, fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord realizing, you know, I'm always before his presence, no matter where I go, no matter what I do. I'm always in his presence. Fear of the Lord is a wonderful deterrent from sin. And I think that's one of the ways of escape, just knowing God's watching me. 
So the third thing we can learn about God's character, starting in verse 5, is that God is all-powerful. Verse 5, The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, and all of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. Now if you were here last week, uh, this same kind of verbiage or same kind of uh, words here is used in chapter 8, and it's really a picture of an earthquake. Um, it's very unnerving when the ground that you're standing on starts to kind of like melt beneath your feet. I've experienced that. It's a very uneasy feeling. You know, you, if you've ever been on a ship or a boat for any length of time, you know, you, you, you get your what they call the sea legs, you know, you're, you kind of you get used to the moving of the of the boat on the water. And, and then what a comfort is when you step on the ground, all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's not moving. You're, move, you're still moving because you still got your sea legs, but the ground's firm. Well, how unnerving it is when that firm ground you're, you're depending on, all of a sudden it's not firm. It's moving <laughs> underneath your feet. God touches the earth, and it melts. You know, and when a river crests and starts flooding, you know, it, sometimes, you know, we see these pictures of these spring floods and stuff, and, and it's like this, this big, massive amount of water, and it looks like it's moving slow. It just looks like a nice, gentle... But yet, it's, it's, there's so much power in that volume of water that it's just basically taking everything with it in its path. Force of water is deceptive. Well, God's judgment is also described like a flood of waters sweeping away the wicked with its power. God is powerful. Psalm 93, verse 3, it says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. If you've ever been on the ocean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing uh, I used to be in the Coast Guard, and we used to do search and rescue in the, in the Oregon coast. And one of the things that, that's a kind of a common factor for people that get stuck in bad times in the water, basically, is they take for granted the ocean. They just go out there, you know, unprepared, and, and you know, they're just, they, just, they just don't believe that things can change so drastically. In one minute, you know, you could be in a total disaster uh, out on the open seas like that. So you really need to respect the ocean. You need to respect that. Well, as mighty and as powerful as a raging you know, ocean is, God is more powerful than that. I've got these pictures from the Oregon coast that uh, I took. I was standing on this one point. It's Point Arago, if you ever have heard of that before. And uh, there's these little points that kind of jut out into the water. And I was on one little point kind of looking, and it was a real stormy winter, winter day, and the waves were just huge. And we're probably, I'm guessing, I'm going to guess at least 75 feet off the, off the water, maybe even higher than that, but at least 75 feet above the water. And I'm on this one point, and I took this picture because I saw this wave, and the wave was like, I don't know, it was huge over higher than this 75-foot thing over the water. And I'm taking a picture, and in I still have it somewhere, but in that picture, there's a little spot that you can see on the edge of the thing, and it's a guy standing there. And I'm looking, on like, that water is like 10 times taller than this guy who's 75 feet above the water. I mean, that's how big these ocean waves were coming. It's huge. And it just, it just is like, wow, I can't believe that. God is more powerful than even the raging storm, the raging waters. You know, in Psalm 32, 
the psalmist reminds us to seek God while we can before the day of judgment when the wicked will be swept away. Listen to Psalm 32, verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. The Bible always says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to seek the Lord. Because you have no guarantee of tomorrow. Verse 6 of Amos 9. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. It says he builds his uh, uh, layers. Well, it could be steps. Uh, translated steps in the sky. Um, on one level, I think this could be referring to the various spheres above the earth. You know, we have the atmosphere, the ionosphere. I don't know what other spheres are above that. Um, you know, in the natural realm, it could be speaking about that. But it could also be speaking about uh, something else here, like what Paul described in 2, 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. He says, he's speaking about this vision of this man who died. And, of course, we think it's Paul himself. But he was ta- takes it talks about being caught up to the third heaven. This is this other realm above what you and I can see or, or know in, in, in our flesh. Um, and then it says here, he has also founded his strata in the earth. Um, and I was looking at what does this mean? You know, it's interesting. The people that are trying to de- interpret this, there's a lot of different interpretations. But that word strata, it refers to the structures of strata fitted together like a vault. It's a layer. So however you want to determine it. I think what this boils down to this verse, God created all things visible and invisible, things we can see and the things we can't see, just speaking about his power. And he says, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. Now, when you first read that, it, it, right away, if, you know, it sounds like the hydro, hydrological cycle. Is that right, Dave? Hydraulic? Hydrological, there we go. I'm glad he's here. <laughs> you know, evaporation and then condensation, just the cycle of, of how uh, uh, clouds form and then water, rain falls and stuff. But in the context of this passage, I think God's reminding them, hey, I am powerful. I judge the world of old by a flood. You know, he caused the rains to come down and completely flood the world to wipe out the world because of their sin. And so I think this is God, again, reminding them of his power. So the fourth thing we can learn about God's character when it comes to sin, God is not partial. He does not play favorites. He's just. Look at verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Now, the Israelites were prejudiced based on their race. You know, since they were God's chosen people, they thought, hey, I, we're better than the Ethiopians. We're better than the Syrians. We're better than the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. You, you know, they, they thought that they were better because they were God's chosen people. Well, they were God's chosen people, but the thing that they started forgetting was it wasn't based on them. It wasn't based on anything special about the Jewish race. It was based on God and on His character. And what God's communicating here is that God is no respecter of persons. If they choose to sin like all the nations around them, God's going to judge them like all the nations around them. You know, sometimes as Christians... We feel that, you know, we can sin, 
with impunity. You know, I'll just I'll just sin and then I'll I'll pray and repent and you know everything will be fine again. And we we get that attitude, a very a very lax attitude towards God. And uh, the Bible says, God is not mocked. A man sows what he reaps. And it, there's no there's no you know it doesn't say a, except for the Christians they don't sow what you know a man sows what he reaps. It's a warning for all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. God is not partial. He's not a respecter of persons. The fifth thing we can learn about God's character is God is merciful. In verse 8, it says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. That doesn't sound very merciful, Don. What are you saying? (laughs) But listen to this. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations. As grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. Not because of any goodness in Israel, but only because of God's covenant with David, God promised that he would not utterly destroy the children of Israel. And yet, he would sift them among all the nations. You get this picture of wheat being sifted in a sieve. And, uh, you know, basically to sift something, you're basically just removing the, the, the junk and so that you ha- preserve the grain, right? You get, r- get rid of the husks or whatever, and, and you just have what's the, just the kernel, the grain that you want. That's what the sifting is supposed to do. It has a purifying effect. And so God says, I'm going to sift my people. You know, God does the same with you and I. He allows you and I to be sifted. Why? Because He hates us, because He's punishing us. No, because He wants to remove those things from us that are not of Him. And it's a loving thing that God does. I like what um, Spurgeon said. He says, I think I see you, poor believer, tossed about like that wheat, up and down, right and left, in the sieve and in the air, never resting. Does that sound like your life? Being, you know, you're being tossed around. Perhaps it is suggested to you, God is very angry with me. No, the farmer is not angry with his wheat when he casts it up and down in the sieve, and neither is God angry with you. This you shall see one day when the light, uh, when the light shall show that love ruled in all your griefs. You know, you, you may think God's sending you, you know, God's tossing you up and down or, you know, you're right and left. and you, It's like, man, my life is so topsy-turvy. What are you doing, God? God's sifting you. He's trying to remove those impurities from your life. And it's because he loves you. But even though God would sift Israel, he says he wouldn't utterly forsake them. You know, in that sifting process, he's basically saying the smallest grain is not going to escape. It's not going to fall through the cracks. Um, the only ones that are going to be destroyed here, as he describes it, are the sinners among the people. And that is implying those who are unrepentant. Those who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. In other words, those who continue to walk in sin with unrepentant pride, they're going to they're be, be slayed. But the sixth thing we can learn about God's character, and this is the last thing, is that God is faithful. Look at verse 11. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. 
that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Isn't that an amazing thing? You're reading through all this destruction that God is promising on this northern kingdom because of their, their unrepentant sin and their disobedience. And, and they've, just, they've just rebuked and they've, they've, they've punished, they've persecuted all the prophets that God has sent. So God says, okay, punishment is coming. But in the midst of this proclamation, there's this abrupt change from judgment to hope. I love that. Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Man, God doesn't hold grudges. I, I love that. Amos is now prophesying abruptly here now of the coming of the Messiah. And not only that, but the gospel going to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He's speaking about you and I, believe it or not. You know, James refers back to this passage of Scripture in uh, Acts chapter 15. You know, the, the Jews, the, the gospel had gone to Israel. The, the, the disciples had evangelized Israel. And then all of a sudden, Peter, remember he had that vision to go, basically it was to, to start ministering to the Gentiles. And so he started going to the Gentiles. And Gentiles started getting saved. And it was really becoming an issue because the Jewish people said, well, if you want to be a Christian and you're a Gentile, you first have to go through the Jewish rite of circumcision. You have to become a Jew first, then you become a Christian. And they're like, no, that's, that's not what God is telling us. And so there was this big you know, controversy there in the church there in Jerusalem. And so they had what was known as the Jerusalem Council. And so they had Paul and Barnabas and Peter was there sharing about how these Gentiles were coming to faith in the Lord. And it was a very pivotal point in the, life, the history of the early church. Well, in Acts 15... Uh, verse 12, it says, now they're at this council and all these people are talking. It says, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had wrought through them among the Gentiles. And after that, they had become silent. James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and he quotes this in Amos chapter 9. After this I will re- return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. All that to say is this prophecy was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman uh, shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the way cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. He says, Behold, the days are coming when the plowman overtakes the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds. What is that picture of? It's speaking about basically bumper crops. You know, instead of sowing your seed and then waiting and then reaping and then finally treading the grapes, there's going to be so much fruitfulness 
that these these processes in in this it's going to overlap each other there's going to be so much there's going to there's going to be no delay between the processes in fact these guys are going to be bumping into each other the people planting the people reaping that you know there there is just so much fruitfulness is what it's speaking about you know this has been and i think is being fulfilled in our generations god is faithful god is faithful in the land he brought back the children of Israel. I, I was looking, trying to... At first I was going to do this presentation. I thought I'd show a lot of pictures and stuff, but I, I ran out of time, basically. But um, So I has gone on the internet. I was like, like, what was the land of Israel? What did it look like before uh, 1948 when it became a nation? You know what it looked like? It was desert. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing there. It was desolate. It was just a few nomadic shepherds going around, basically, and a lot of cities that were in ruin. I mean, Jerusalem was there. but um, And then, so... If you ever fly to Israel, usually, I don't know if every time, but you fly into Tel Aviv. You know, it's, a, it's, a, well, it's their capital right now, although Jerusalem really is, should be their capital. But Tel Aviv's the capital that the world recognizes at this point. And uh, Tel Aviv, in 1909, was founded. And basically what it was is these Jewish guys bought like 12 acres of desert sand, dune, sand dunes, basically, from these Bedouin Arabs. There's nothing there. And so they have this picture. These, it's like 50 or so Jewish people standing there. And it's just like they're in the middle. of There's just sand. And uh, so then they decide, well, how are they going to mark off the land? Well, they found seashells. They had found white seashells, I think brown seashells. And they gave them to different people. And they, and they basically put them in different places. This is your territory. This is your... That's how, they, that's how Tel Aviv was founded. When you go to Tel Aviv now, it's a beautiful metropolis. It's a, it's a gorgeous city to visit. It's amazing. You know, Jericho is one of the most fruitful when it comes to fruits and vegetables and produce. It's, it's a beautiful place to visit. There's, God has blessed the land of Israel. You know, uh, Amir Savardi, he was the guy that we had the prophecy conference. He was talking about, you know, you can, you can tell when you get to the border of Israel and Lebanon. You know how you can tell? The green stops and the brown starts. The green of Israel is just the land. You can physically see the blessings of the Lord God on the land of Israel. And it's, it's amazing. God is faithful. He says, I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. You think about that. I believe that prophecy of bringing them back into the land has been fulfilled, is in the process of being fulfilled even today as we speak. So this prophecy has been fulfilled. So God has planted them in the land. It's being fulfilled in our generation. And he says, no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them. There's some people that really have a hard time with this. Because they think that, you know, the, the church has replaced Israel. And so they, try, they get into all this spiritual thing. It's called replacement theology. And they get into all this spiritual, spiritualizing these promises. Well, God has planted the literal nation of Israel in the land. And God has said, they're not going to be pulled up again. So, you know, when you look at the news and you read about these different nations, Iran, the Arab states, they would love nothing better than to wipe Israel off the face of the map. They would like to push them into the ocean. They've tried a few times unsuccessfully. But God is faithful. He says they're never going to be pulled up from the land. So, you know, when I hear about all the things that Iran's doing with nuclear weapons, yeah, I'm concerned but I don't think God's going to allow Israel to get destroyed. I, they're, they're probably going to suffer. I'm sure they're going to have some suffering. The, you know, it, 
you know, I don't know, but I do know this. God's faithful, and I don't think you have to worry about Israel in that regard. Um, God's going to fight their battles for them. In fact, there's one in Ezekiel that I think is probably the next thing on our prophetic horizon if the rapture doesn't happen before that. So why do I bring that up? Well, hopefully you can find some application in these things about God's character. But that last one, God is faithful. You know, if God is faithful to the land of Israel, God's faithful to you and I and his promises as well. And I, and I think that's a great thing. Uh, so while the announcements were going up, I'm trying to, there's a verse that popped up into my head, and I was trying to look for it when I got distracted by somebody. <laughs> but basically... Jesus here has promised that he's, 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 he's leaving the disciples. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I'm going to take you to be with myself. That's a promise for you and I as Christians. God has promised salvation for you and I. God is faithful. God has promised to forgive you of your sins if you repent of your sins. God is faithful. You know, you, you might think, well, you know, is there ever going to be a time where I'm going to repent of my sins and God's going to say, no, I'm not going to forgive you? No, God is faithful. He will forgive you of your sins. So I just want to encourage you. In fact, I would encourage you. I, I was hoping to do it, but I didn't get, I ran out of time to do it. But I would encourage you to dig into your word, look at the promises that God has for you, and understand, looking back at the history of God's faithfulness to Israel, and look at your life today, I want you to know that God is faithful to those promises in your life. And may that give you some hope and some comfort in these last days, because I tell you, there's a lot of unsurety in this world, but one thing is sure, God's love never fails for you and I. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we just thank you. Lord, we thank you for just the, the revelation of these characters, characteristics of you, Lord God. And Father, I, I just thank you, Lord, that uh, you don't hold your anger forever. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful to forgive us. Lord, you are faithful in your promises, Lord. And Father, I pray that we as Christians, Lord, that we might take comfort in the fact that uh, you're all-knowing and that you're all-powerful, Lord, that you are ruling on the throne And Lord, may we be reminded as well, Lord, that you love us so much you don't want to share um, our allegiance with anybody else. Lord, you you alone want us to worship uh, you. (laughs) Father, I just, uh, just thank you for these reminders this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people and uh, ask that you might just go with them this day, that they might be reminded of your presence. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.